In this little section here of John chapter 10, we have a little insight, a little glimpse into who Jesus is or what he's like and who God is or what God is like. When we say, who is Jesus? What kind of person was Jesus? People will give, obviously, different answers to that question. Some will say, well, he was a good man. And unfortunately, uh, there was a systemic injustice in ancient Israel, and Jesus fell prey to that, and his life was tragically lost due to injustice. He was cut down, as it were, before his time. And uh, if only he had lived longer because he was a good man. Or people will say, well, yes, on the one hand, he was a victim of injustice, but he wasn't a weak and passive victim of injustice. He could have spared his life by simply compromising. And he could have spared his life by not being so principled And so, yes, he was a victim, but in another sense, he was something like a martyr. And he died for a cause. He died for a purpose. He died for something he believed in. They might quote something like uh, Braveheart, where uh, William Wallace says, Every man dies, not every man truly lives. And they would say, well, there's Jesus, a man who truly lived. He wasn't afraid of the system. He wasn't afraid of the Romans. He wasn't afraid of the Pharisees. And he lived a life worth living and he didn't back down from anybody and he died for a cause and he died for a purpose. People will give all kinds of different answers when you ask them what sort of person was Jesus. Well, our passage today gives us some indication of what kind of person Jesus was and it gives us further A glimpse into who God is in his triune being. So let's consider these two verses, John chapter 10, 17 to 18. And let's consider first that Jesus clearly does not see himself as a victim. Certainly in one sense, Jesus was. And obviously Jesus himself knew that. And Jesus himself would have acknowledged that. In Acts 2.27, we read that in Jerusalem there were gathered together against God's holy servant, Jesus, whom he anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So basically the whole world essentially was arrayed against Jesus. The Jews and the Gentiles, and not just the common folk among them, but the powers that be, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. And so they gathered together against Jesus, and Jesus was a victim of their injustice and their sin against him. But in another sense, Jesus was no victim. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, I lay down my life. I lay down my life. And if that wasn't clear enough, Jesus says explicitly in verse 18, no one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. We see here that there was purpose to Jesus' death, intention 
to Jesus' death. That didn't just happen to Jesus the way that one day death is going to happen to you. Death is going to happen to me. We are are going to be uh, most likely, unless obviously, of course, with the exception of suicide, we are going to be essentially passive in our death. That there is going to be events that transpire or a, a series of events that transpire which lead us to our death, whether we like it or not. And we are not really going to be able to say the same thing as Jesus. No one, no one takes it from me. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Our life will be taken from us. And if you say, well, yeah, I'm ready to go and be with the Lord, and so I lay it down. Well, fair enough. Point taken that you're not resisting and you know, kicking and screaming. But at the same time, you are not laying your life down of your own accord the way that Jesus is saying that he lays his life down of his own accord. What he's saying is, if I didn't want to die, I wouldn't die. Which is very different than anything we could say. And Jesus is saying, I have chosen then implicitly, I have chosen to give up my life. I have chosen to lay down my life. No one could take it from me. Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews, they can't take my life from me. But I have chosen to lay it down. So there was purpose to Jesus' death. There was intention. And what was the intention? To inspire us? To leave us with an example? To teach us something? To teach us, as I alluded to earlier, perhaps that there are some things worth dying for. To teach us how much He loves us. No. Jesus intends to go through death and then return. Look at verse 17. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus does not intend to stay dead. Jesus is purposefully dying, but he's not permanently dying. And he knows that. So Jesus' death isn't anything like any kind of death that we might die. I mentioned Braveheart a little while ago, for those of you who have seen it. William Wallace, spoiler, he dies at the end. Okay? And I think that at least within, I'm not going to debate the historicity of the movie, but within the, within the storyline of the movie, it's a meaningful death. And it's a profound death. And he does die as something of a martyr, fighting in, according to the movie, for the liberation of Scotland from the tyrannical king of England. And he does die something, as something of a martyr, as something of an example. He does die to inspire his countrymen and to elicit from them the same sort of courage and bravery and so on and so forth. And there's a sense in which he lays his life down in that he doesn't compromise his principles. Jesus wasn't doing anything of the sort because the day after and the second day after and the third day after William Wallace died, William Wallace was still dead. And the fourth day after and the fifth day after and to present. William Wallace is still dead. But Jesus died and on the third day was raised. And what he tells us here 
is that that was his intention, to lay down his life and then to take it up again. So Jesus wasn't just dying after the manner of courageous men. Jesus wasn't dying after the manner of revolutionaries. Jesus wasn't dying after the manner of even the best men who die for the most noble causes. Jesus wasn't dying as one who pushes someone out of the train tracks that they might be saved and that he might die. We might use an analogy like that to talk about substitutionary atonement. But when someone does that, the day after they die, and the second day after, and the third day after, they're still dead. But Jesus didn't die like that, did he? On the third day, Jesus rose. And this was his intention. Jesus intended to go through death and then return. Jesus was dying to accomplish something. And when that was accomplished... He would rise. He would take up his life again. As we have seen over the last couple of weeks, Jesus is going to lay down his life for his sheep. Which means in the place of his sheep. I quoted D.A. Carson a couple of weeks ago who said, when Jesus uh, says that he's going to lay down his life for his sheep, this clearly indicates to us the idea of penal substitution. This clearly indicates to us the substitutionary nature of the atonement. Because no shepherd would, for example, like fling himself off a cliff while yelling to his sheep, See how much I love you? And yet this is the way that the atonement is described by so many. That what, never mind the wrath of God, never mind hell, Jesus came to show us how much God loves us. And he died even to show us how much he loves us. And Jesus does, at the cross, show us how much he loves us. But the reason that it's meaningful and not absurd is because he's showing us what would have been required of us had he not substituted himself. And we see that in the willingness of one who would put himself in that place instead of us, great love. If one would put himself in the path of an oncoming train, so to speak, to use the analogy I alluded to even a moment ago, if someone would do that, how much they must love us. If somebody would bear God's wrath on our behalf, how much he must love us. And so when we see that Jesus lays down his life for his sheep, it only really makes sense if he's substituting himself to rescue his sheep from something. And that is, in fact, what Jesus was doing. What we see is that Jesus is choosing to die in the place of his sheep. Jesus is choosing to bear the wrath of God poured out upon him in the place of his sheep. And it's of his own accord. No one takes his life from him. He's not a victim. 
He's doing it purposefully. He's laying down his life of his own accord that he might accomplish the work and then take his life up again. He's in full control of this process. He understands what is expected of him. He understands, though he hasn't yet experienced, something of the horrors of Gethsemane and Golgotha. And Jesus is saying, I am willing to go to Gethsemane. And I am willing to go to Golgotha. I'm choosing that. I intend that. That is my purpose. And when the work is done, I will take my life up again. So Jesus wasn't just dying after the manner of good men. That's something no man has ever been able to say. No one who has thrown himself in front of a train for another. None of the William Wallaces of history have ever been able to say, I am dying for a purpose. And when that purpose is accomplished, I will take my life up again. No one is able to say, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Who, who in their right mind, if they could simply stop the train, would instead fling themselves in front of it? Who in their right mind, if they could simply conquer the tyrannical king of England, would die at his hands for the freedom of his nation and to inspire his countrymen to take arms? What we see here is that even these types of men who we might say are the best of men, those who die for a purpose, those who die for conviction, the best of men have their lives taken from them. The best of men get hit by trains. The best of men get executed by tyrants. And none of them, none of them takes their life up again. And so we see something here of the purpose, pardon me, the character of Jesus in the purpose, in the intention. You think Jesus is as soft and as weak as so much of the artwork of church history portrays him to be? This this soft-looking man that if you had a work day at the church, you might assign him some sort of uh, light-duty task because he looks like he can't do much heavy lifting. The sort, of, the sort of guy that you might not want to hire to work on your farm all summer because you're not sure how he would do. You think Jesus is, is a weak man like that? You think that somebody who flings himself in front of a train to push another out of the way, or somebody, again, historicity aside, somebody like the man that Braveheart portrays William Wallace to be, you think that these men are better men than Jesus? Tougher men than Jesus? Stronger men than Jesus? More admirable men than Jesus? I was watching a uh, little video yesterday on uh, YouTube, and it was a reconstruction of an old Viking ship. 
uh, sailing the North Sea in the middle of a storm. And it was, I'm, not, I'm, I'm more of a uh, land lover myself. I'm not really so much about the, uh, the sea, let alone when it's a storm, let alone in an old Viking boat. But uh, I was reading through some of the comments and people were saying back when, back when, one person said back when the boats were made of wood and the men were made of steel. And I, I thought, well, that's a pretty good comment. But do you think that do you think that the Vikings were better, tougher, stronger men than Jesus? Do you understand that everything, everything that the men we admire have done, pales in comparison to what Christ has done? Do you realize that the all of the movies we watch and the characters in them that we admire? are lesser stories than this story. And, and every man of strength and courage and conviction and principle and love and sacrifice and duty and honor and nobility, every, every man comes up short compared to Jesus, who looks at Gethsemane, who looks at Golgotha, who looks at something far worse than a train. Yes, he's going to be hit by a train, so to speak, and then some. First of all, Roman crucifixion is a far worse fate than a train, getting hit by a train. If you had a choice to stand on the tracks or to be crucified on a Roman cross, first of all, the Roman cross is worse. Apparently, I'm not, I'm not sure what you call experts in this field, but the experts tell us that, that Roman crucifixion is probably the most brutal and barbaric form of death that humans have ever invented. Apparently, it's just awful. And I don't know how you study that or who these experts are, but that's what I'm told. But it wasn't just the physical death of Jesus. As Jesus hung on the cross... The cry went out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We sing that song, the Father turns his face away. What happened at the cross was that there was a judicial displeasure poured out upon Christ by the Father. That though He was the beloved of all eternity, and we're going to talk about the unity of the Trinity in a moment, though He is the eternal beloved of the Father, though He was loved as He hung on the cross, look at, even at our text, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. When Jesus was laying down his life, he was never more loved by the Father. And yet there was a judicial displeasure poured out upon Christ on the cross. The wrath of God was poured out upon him. He drank the cup of God's wrath. I preached a whole sermon on it a while back, and you can look that up for a longer treatment of the subject. But the cup is an image in the scripture when it's used literally, it literally just means a cup. But when it's used metaphorically, it means a cup full of God's wrath that you drink 
to your own destruction. So when Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and prays, let this cup pass from me. He wasn't speaking about a literal cup that was nearby him in the garden. So if he's using the image, or if he's using the word cup as an image, as a metaphor, he's referring to that dominant metaphor of the scripture, the cup of God's wrath. As Jesus hung on the cross, he was loved by the Father, and yet, come behold the wondrous mystery. At the same time, he was the object of the Father's wrath. And he was drinking the cup of the Father's wrath down to its dregs for the sheep, on behalf of the sheep, as a substitute for the sheep. And we see here in John chapter 10 that Jesus knew full well that this was what the cross was for. That this was the way that his life would end. The way that his ministry would culminate. The apex that it would come to was this experience of being on the cross for the sheep. Laying down his life for the sheep in order that he might take it up again. What a noble Savior. What a good Savior. What a courageous Savior. What a principled Savior. What a tough Savior. What a strong Savior. All of the things that we might predicate of those whom we admire, of those whom we esteem, we ought to predicate of Christ Jesus who laid his life down. No one took it from him. He laid his life down. We ought to sing as we just did, not only with our mouths, not only with our vocal cords, but with our hearts. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We sang at the beginning of the service, let all mortal flesh keep silence. And I love that song because it makes the gravity of what happened felt. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not created, took on flesh, dwelt among us, unlike other men had authority over his own life, over his own death, and chose to lay it down in order that he might take it up again for us and for our salvation. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And I want to highlight further in this section what we see of the Godhead, the Trinity. What kind of God is God? Just as we ask the question, what kind of man is Jesus? What kind of God is God? Who is He? Look at verse 18. Everything that we just described about Jesus' death 
the purpose of it, the intention of it. This was the Father's plan. This charge, Jesus says, I have received from my Father. We must understand that the Father sent and gave the Son. We've seen this already in John's Gospel at several points. I'm just going to turn back to the well-known John chapter 3 and read verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Who gave? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. The one who had a son was the one who gave, namely the Father. And why did He give? That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So everything that we just saw about the intention of Christ's death was the Father's plan. Now again, let me clear this out of the way. The cross was not, as someone has blasphemously said, I forget who it was, I didn't even bother to look it up. The cross was not an instance of divine cosmic child abuse. The Father did not force His Son to the cross. And Jesus had His life taken from Him at the cross. We've already seen, no one takes it from Him. I lay it down of my own accord. Not to mention even just the fact that obviously Jesus was a full-grown man, so I'm not even sure where this idea comes from. Anyway, but a prominent liberal theologian has said that within the last 20 years or something like that. Nonsense. What we see is that what Jesus wants to do what Jesus purposes to do, what Jesus intends to do, is also what the Father has purposed to do. What the Father wants to do. What the Father intends to do. And implicitly, the Spirit also. Now, it's right to speak of the Father sending the Son and giving the Son, as opposed to speaking about the Spirit sending the Son, and the Spirit giving the Son. There are particular ways that we are supposed to talk about the relations of the person and the Godhead. But what I mean by saying that this is what the Father wants to do and what the Spirit wants to do, as well as being what the Son wants to do, I say it that way to exclude the mistake of thinking that there are multiple and potentially competing wills in the Godhead. What the Father wants is also what the Spirit wants. And what the Spirit wants is also what the Son wants. And we can say that however many different ways we have to to cover all our bases. What each person of the Godhead wants is what the whole Godhead wants. There is no disharmony within the Trinity concerning redemption. And so we speak of the Father giving and the, 
and the Father sending. And we speak of the Son obeying the Father. And we speak of the Son coming. And we speak of the Spirit filling. And we speak of the Son pouring out the Spirit. And the Father sending the Spirit. And there are various verbs that we use in connection with different persons of the Godhead. Most basically, we speak of the Father begetting the Son and then the Spirit proceeding from both the Father and the Son. And these are based on what the Bible tells us about the interrelations of persons within the Trinity. There are things which are particularly predicated of the Spirit. And there are things which are particularly predicated of the Father. And there are things which are particularly predicated of the Son. For example, regeneration is particularly predicated of the Spirit. Actually making atonement is particularly predicated of the Son. Election is particularly predicated of the Father. And so it's right to attribute to to each person of the Godhead those things in Scripture which are particularly attributable to them. We try as best as we can to use the language of Scripture and to use the language of good and necessary consequence as we speak about the relations of the person in the Godhead. So we ought not to pray, for example, Dear Father, thank you for dying for us on the cross. Right? Or, or we don't say, um, uh, and I'm not at all trying to be irreverent and giving examples. I'm just trying to be helpful. Because we do make these mistakes in prayer. We make Trinitarian mistakes. Right? Or, or we ought not to pray, Dear Jesus, please grant so-and-so the new birth. Right? Please regenerate this person. And, and we don't say, Holy Spirit of God, thank you for choosing us from eternity past. We, we generally want to use the words of Scripture, the language of Scripture, the vocabulary of Scripture, in the way that Scripture itself does, and make the necessary inferences and the good and ne- draw the good and necessary consequences that we need to, to understand and speak about the Trinity and the interpersonal relationships within the Trinity as best as we can. We don't want to just uh, emphasize the oneness at the expense of the threeness. But neither do we want to emphasize the threeness at the expense of the oneness. As I said earlier, we don't want to, for example, imagine that there are multiple and potentially competing wills in the Godhead. What the Father wants is what the Son wants and what the Spirit wants. And what the Son does, the Father and the Spirit also share. And what the Father does, the Spirit and the Son also share. And what the Spirit does, the Father and the Son also share. Did I just say that wrong? Or I said that right? I'm I'm, uh, Once we start doing this, we get into a complex way of speaking. I think you get get the point of what I'm saying, even if I said it mistakenly. 
we need to try to speak as accurately as we can about these relationships within the Godhead. But we recognize that there is mystery here which is incomprehensible to us. That we can apprehend certain things about the Trinity, but we cannot ever comprehend God. And the difference between apprehend and comprehend is that apprehend means you take hold of something. Comprehend means you you get it comprehensively, totally. And so if somebody is arrested, we might say they were apprehended. So a criminal does something, the police came and laid hold of them and apprehended them. We say um, if we have comprehensive vehicle insurance, it, uh, it means that whether the accident is someone else's fault or our fault, it doesn't matter. The, comprehensively, whatever the cause, whatever the case, it's covered. So we cannot comprehend God. We can't, we can't make a container in our minds which is bigger than God, which we might fit Him into. And isn't that just somewhat self-evident? That if, if in our minds there was a, a vessel big enough to contain God, then our minds, which are bigger than the container within our minds, would be bigger than God. And then God would cease to be God. Right? That, so to me, it makes very intuitive sense that we can't comprehend God. But we might, like the uh, woman with the issue of blood, we might come and lay hold of the fringe of his garment. We might truly apprehend something. We might take hold of something. We can know true things about God. And so as we come to Trinitarian theology, what we want to do is apprehend what we can. Though we recognize that there, are, there is much that we cannot understand. And we, we have to accept at the outset that we are not going to comprehend God. So the Son is begotten of the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's one of the most basic and non-controversial things you can say about the Trinity. That all of the persons of the Godhead are co-eternal and co-equal. That though the Son is begotten of the Father, though the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, there is no temporality to the Son or temporality to the Spirit, but that all are co-eternal. And there is no subordinationism of any sort in that because the Son is begotten of the Father, therefore He is somehow subordinate to the Father or something like that. Or because the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, that He is somehow subordinate to the Father and the Son or something like that. So we see here in this passage, back to John 10, that what the Son intends to do and purposes to do 
is also what the Father has charged him with doing, which means that it's also what the Father has purposed and intended to do, which is also what the Spirit then implicitly has purposed and intended to do, because there is this unity and this harmony within the Godhead. So, Trinitarian theology is complicated, but let me bring it down to uh, ground level. What this means is that just like you feel loved when I talk about Jesus' intention in dying for you, you feel loved by Jesus. You ought to feel loved by all of the members of the Godhead. You ought to feel loved by the Father. You ought to feel loved by the Spirit as you feel loved by the Son. Trinitarian theology is complicated because it's about God who is an incomprehensible being. But it's not dry. It's not boring, or at least it ought not to be. If we find it so, there's something wrong with us. Because what we're doing is essentially looking at a portrait of the one we love. What we are doing when we do Trinitarian theology is trying to understand something of the one who has loved us with an everlasting love. What we're doing is trying to understand something of the someone whose everlasting arms are underneath us, bearing us up in every circumstance of life. We're trying to understand something of the one who carries us like lambs close to his bosom. We're trying to understand something of the one who says, when you pass through the fire, when you pass through the water, I will be with you. It won't hurt you. It won't overwhelm you. I will preserve you. We're trying to understand something of the one into whose name we have been baptized. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We're trying to understand something of the one whose dwelling place shall forever be with us on that day when Christ returns. And so we do our best with the language that we have available to us, with the paradigm that the Scripture gives us for how we speak about God and what sort of things are out of bounds to say and predicate about God and what sort of things are in bounds and permissible to say and to speak about God. But at the end of the day, what we're speaking about is not actually a what, but a who. And he is the one who loves us. And he is, or ought to be, the one who we love. And he is the one, before there ever was anything else to love, he is the one who loved within himself from eternity past. Look here. There is love between the Father and the Son. When Jesus says, for this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. As one commentator put it, it doesn't mean that the Father withholds his love until the Son does that. It means, it means rather that there is this delight in the Son who does his Father's will. And there is this delight in the Son who is the exact image of the Father. 
that there is this delight in the one whose will is shared among all the members of the Godhead from eternity, and that there is delight in the Father, or pardon me, there is delight in the Son, in the Father's heart, so to speak. And this is the way that it was, if we can, it doesn't even make sense really to say that before the beginning of time, but if we can go in our mind's eye to eternity past, before the beginning of time, and somehow stretch the limits of our it's not really even imagination, but just stretch the limits of our conceiving to when there was only God. There was love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father loving the Son and the Spirit. The Son loving the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit loving the Father and the Son. And these relationships of love are manifest in the outworking of redemption. And so the Father loves the Son who comes and lays down His life that He might take it up again. This is what Jesus means. The Father takes delight in me who does what He charges me to do, who lays down His life that He might take it up again. There is delight and admiration and love within the Godhead. And so, as we approach the last half of John, in which there is tons of Trinitarian theology, more so than we've seen even in the first half, we're going to see lots of this talk about the relationship between the Father and the Son. Bear in mind these things that I've taught you today, that we've discussed today, that there are wrong ways to speak about the Trinity, that there are right ways, but sometimes we're at a loss for how to understand or conceptualize the things that we predicate of the Trinity. But we need to do our best as we make our way through this Trinitarian stuff. And what I would really like to say, and what I'm trying to press upon you this morning is that we shouldn't think of the Trinity as a boring doctrine but we should think of the Trinity the things that the scripture tells us about the Trinity as a portrait of a loved one the way that a soldier dispatched overseas might carry a picture of his loved one at home and he looks at it and remembers all of the intricacies of who she is and what she looks like. And he rehearses things to himself about her person, the one that he loves. And he tells himself about this feature and that feature and what she is like and what she isn't like. And perhaps he talks to his friends about it. But they don't care as much because she's not the one that they love. If the doctrine of the Trinity is boring to us, it probably just shows us that we don't love God as we are. Let's strive to have warm-hearted studies of the Godhead. Warm-hearted studies of the Trinity. That we might see the love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. 
and the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit for us, and that we might return then love to the Father and the Son and the Spirit as we gaze upon and adore and worship this beautiful and wondrous and incomprehensible being. So we see in this passage, in summary here, John 10, 17, and 18, we see here a portrait of Jesus, a noble, a good, a strong, a sacrificial, a tough, a loving shepherd. We ought to admire, we ought to love Jesus. But we ought not only to love Jesus, but we ought to also love Jesus' Father, from whom he received this charge to come and do this thing. And though the Spirit is not mentioned explicitly in this passage, because of our Trinitarian theology, we understand that the Spirit is involved in redemption and in the Son's giving of himself also. And so we also ought to love the Spirit. We ought to see the beauty of the Godhead, see their love one for another, see their love for us, and return love to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, trying as best as we can to hold the oneness firm, hold the threeness firm, speak in the proper categories with the proper verbs and the proper predications as are applicable to each member of the Trinity, but don't get, don't lose sight of what it's for. Is that we might understand God's love for Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, His love for us, and that we might return love to Him. We see in John 10, 17 and 18, a beautiful God, worthy of our love and admiration and study.